Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello and welcome to Second Chance, a podcast that explores the notion of second chance. What is a second chance? Who deserves a second chance? And who decides whether someone is worthy of a second chance? On the morning of the 26th of April 1999, Jill Dando, an English journalist, television presenter and newsreader, was shot dead outside her home in London. It prompted the biggest murder inquiry conducted by the Metropolitan Police and the country's largest criminal investigation since the hunt for the Yorkshire Ripper. A year later, a local disabled man called Barry George was arrested and later convicted and imprisoned for the murder. Eight years later, following a successful appeal against his original conviction, he was retried and acquitted. The case remains unsolved. My name is Raphael Rowe, and on this episode I speak with Michelle Diskin, the sister of Barry George. She campaigned tirelessly to prove her brother's innocence. Here she talks about what it's like to be a relative caught up in a high-profile case of this kind, and what it took from her and others to challenge the British criminal justice system. If you were to give me a a summary of the last 20 years, how would you describe yourself being the sister of a man that was accused and acquitted of one of, if not the UK's most notorious high-profile murder case? Well, I'd add to that it's an unsolved case. I suppose I was very quiet, suburban housewife, three children. I'd had depression in the past and um, I was recovered, just recovered from that when I heard that my brother had been arrested for this terrible murder and it took my life from this quiet little village in, in Cork in Ireland to suddenly I was 
being thrust onto a sort of a worldwide stage with the media. It was just something I had never had any experience of. It didn't mean anything to me. I had no idea what this world was going to be like or how long it was going to last. I know the Giordando case. I know the case of Barry George, uh, but I don't know the case of Michelle Diskin. Well, not until recently when I read your book, Stand Against Injustice, which for the first time kind of details your journey, the experience that you and your family, your mother and other family members went through. And that was the first thing I read, the moment that you found out that your brother had been arrested, this story that we were all watching unfold in the media. Tell me what it was like receiving that call. Well, actually, it was a newscast. I didn't receive a call. Nobody told me this was happening. Um, My mum obviously knew she was living in London, but she was certain that it would all just blow away. It was it was wrong. It was a mistake. So that there wouldn't be a problem. So I was listening to the news in Ireland when I heard that somebody had been arrested for Gildando's murder. And my first thought was, oh, that's fantastic. I'm so glad. But I was only half listening because I was getting ready to go out that morning. And uh, then I heard the name Barry Balsara. Well, I knew my Barry used that name in his email address. But then I said, well, no, there must be more Barry Balsaras. But the fear and the confusion and then not knowing what to do. And in the end, I phoned my mum. And then I knew our world had changed. But I still had no concept of how long everything was going to take. Because like my mum, I thought, well, they're going to realise it's a mistake and it's going to blow over. You say that it propelled you into a world that changed. And the one question that that people who don't know you, never spoken to, haven't read your book, um, have probably asked themselves the question, what's it like to be the sister of a man who was accused of the murder of Gildando? It was an alien feeling because I knew that he hadn't done it. Not at the very beginning. At the very beginning, I had to investigate it myself to find out, had my brother done this? Could he have done it? But the more that I learned from the legal team, the more I realised it was totally preposterous and that he was being used as some sort of scapegoat. At least that's how we felt. Um, But, yeah, it was almost like my life suddenly was put on hold Everything was geared to my leaving Ireland um, on at regular intervals, getting to London, supporting my mom, who was on her own and elderly and fairly frail, um, supporting my brother by going to visit prison. And, you know, um, it really was a whole other world. You tell me what you did, supported your mother investigated the the allegations against your brother, tried to find out for yourself whether what was being said was true or not true. What you didn't tell me, and this is what I find really interesting, Michelle, is because your life was propelled into a situation where you had to defend your brother, protect your mother, and obviously other family members, you completely overlooked 
yourself. And I'm interested and I want people to know what it was like for Michelle. What's it like to be the sister of a man accused of such a high profile murder case? I spent so much time looking after everybody else. I didn't think too closely on it. I was determined, I suppose, that I would keep going, still be me, whoever me was at that stage, because it seemed to be changing. Um, It was one foot in front of the other, keep going. If I thought somebody believed it, I just left them alone. I didn't fight back. I didn't do any of those things because what was the point? You know, there was no point. Sometimes people choose to believe things regardless of what evidence there is. So I think I probably buried a lot of me in order to be this person standing at the front. And that seemed to be the job that I'd been given was to stand in front of my family. Did you have to protect your children and your family from the reality? Did you sit down and have a conversation and say, this is what we're going to do? I mean, how does that how does that evolve? How do you turn to your family members and say, this is what we're going to do? This is what we can't do. How do you explain this to your children? I think those things unfolded as time moved on. So it was a case of only discussing what was required at the time. And so at the time, you know, I said that their uncle um, had been arrested, that I needed to go to England. I needed to be with my mum and help her and help Barry. But as time went on, things sort of impacted our lives even more. Like our house phone was tapped and we knew it was tapped because there are telltale signs on the line. Somebody rang me and he said, you know, your phone's tapped, don't you? And he could hear it. Um, I wasn't worried. We had nothing to hide. But it meant we had no privacy. We couldn't talk to people. Um, I had to get my eldest daughter a mobile phone far earlier than I would have done in order that she would have some privacy to talk to her friends. It, it, it impacted every part of our lives. And yet we had to keep going as if nothing was happening. Who do you believe tapped your phone and why? I have no idea who might want to tap my phone. But it was one of the first learning curves. You know, we just had to be careful. How do we pass information on to family and friends? Well, we don't do it electronically. I had to go back to snail mail and write to everybody. I just wonder what it's like functioning with that heavy weight. You know, I myself know that my family have gone through the same experience. I find it revealing how you're carrying a burden that is not your burden, but has become your burden. But how do you carry that burden? How do you cook a meal at home for your children with the weight of knowing that your brother is now in prison accused of a very high profile case? I think you go into self-preservation mode. There's no choice you've got to carry on. You can't fall under it. So you do the whole stiff upper lip, keep your back straight, and you just keep going. But you described it well. It is a heavy burden. And I felt 
almost alone with it because I was doing all the supporting. There wasn't anybody actually there supporting me. And that was very lonely and very difficult. When you walked out your door, did you feel paranoid that people were staring at you, even though they probably didn't know who you were and what was happening back in England? I'm talking about when you're back in Ireland. Did you have that sort of unconscious or conscious feeling every time you walked out the door that that you yourself were being judged? I personally didn't, but I do know that it is. Well, that's how my mother felt every time she walked out her door. Um, I think I just decided I'm not carrying that. I have enough to carry. That can go. And I threw it behind me. But I did know, you know, that there were media coming around looking for information on us. Um, You know, neighbours soon learned what was going on with us. Uh, We lived in this fairly small village um, and we were known by everybody. So then everybody knew. But I just decided, no, I'm not going to take that on. Barry's not guilty. I'm not going to carry more weight than I have to carry. Were you supported by people in your village? I mean, because I suppose people want to be supportive, but they're scared to be supportive. And then the the sort of media foray that went around this case. I mean, how, how did you feel people reacted to you? Most people were wonderful. And I think it's partly because of the whole Irish-English situation. And you've got the the Birmingham Six, the Guildford Four, the Maguire Seven. That's a lot of Irish people wrongly convicted. So they had a different, I think, um, view of it. They understood miscarriage of justice probably far better than they did in the UK. One of the the striking things about this case, apart from the fact that the the victim was Giordando, uh, a, a well known British television presenter that worked for the BBC. But let's talk about the media's role in in this case, because it was substantial, it was excessive, and it never ended. Tell me your, your thoughts and feelings about how the media reflected this case. I can only do that with with hindsight. At the time, I just thought, whatever the media said, it was right. So if the media said this was happening, then it was right that that was happening because other people had been brought in for questioning. I, I'm not even sure. I think people might have been arrested, but they just weren't charged. So I just assumed all of those things were right. I had no experience of any justice system anywhere. I had no reason to have experience of it like everybody else. I believed the media. It was only as we became embroiled in it that I realised they don't actually look for the truth. And that was devastating to me because, to me, there's investigative journalism. People would go and they would do that. They want the truth. But actually, that wasn't our experience at all. Our experience was that they just wanted revenue. And anything that would sell their papers, that's what they gave the papers. Give me an example of one of those first incidents or one of those first reports that you read or watched on TV where they were painting a particular picture 
about your life, your your brother's life, your family's life that you knew to be not true? The most upsetting one was when I saw a huge top of a paper and it said, he's Irish. And then it went on to talk about Barry being in Ireland and how often he'd been here. And Barry had only been in Ireland twice. That was all. And for a very short period. And so there was all this information about he's Irish, like they needed to say, oh, you know, Jordando was killed by the Irish. And you just think, what are they doing? And while they were doing that, they were camped outside my mother's door. 13 days straight, she couldn't twitch her curtains. She couldn't open a door. She couldn't leave her house. And she stayed alive because her neighbours passed milk, bread and cat food across the back fence. You know, that's diabolical. That's not acceptable. Neither my mother nor myself had done anything. And yet we were being treated like we were guilty simply because they couldn't reach Barry, but they could reach us. They went around to all of my neighbours in Ireland you know, knocking on all the doors, looking for dirt on the family, our family, me, my husband, my three children. There wasn't any, and they had to go away. But boy, did they search. That's not acceptable. If somebody is arrested, whether they are guilty or they're innocent, their family haven't done anything wrong, and they shouldn't be. Um put under that sort of pressure. It totally changed our lives, what we could or we couldn't do, even though we kept it as normal as it was possible, almost in defiance of them. But we knew that all the time they were looking for something that they could hang this conviction on. Tell me what it was like visiting Barry when he was being held on remand, accused of murdering Jill Dando. My mum used to go for visits that they term open visits. So you can go into a big room. There are tables and chairs. um, You can sit and have a chat. Um, You're allowed a hug. You can have coffee and biscuits. And, you know, it's as nice as it could be. It's a prison. But when I came from Ireland for my first visit, I was told, It was only going to be my first visit, but it was going to be a closed visit. So we were shown to a room which was probably about six foot by eight foot. And mirrored on the other side of it was a room almost the same. And we were either side then of a dirty perspex wall. Um, I could see Barry. Um, We were supposed to pick up a handset But when I look at the the handset, it was filthy. And Barry wouldn't pick it up because he was afraid somebody would start recording his meeting, which is supposed to be private. And I wouldn't pick it up because it was filthy. So we talked as best we could through the perspex. We could hear each other. And um, at one stage, we just both of us raised our hand and we put it up to the perspex. And I was almost trying to will for that perspex just to disappear so we could hold hands. But of course, that that 
doesn't happen, but it was awful. But I was told I was only going to have one of those meetings. And it was months and months before I was taken off those meetings. I had to phone the police in order to find out why I was still on closed meetings. And then they said, oh, it's not us. It's the prison system. So then I spoke to security at the prison and they said, oh, it's not us. It's the police. And around and around it went. But once I did challenge it, then they decided, oh, they'd be very kind and they would give me these open visits. It sounds like the conditions and the way that you were being treated, despite the fact you'd done nothing wrong, were were bad. How did you feel emotionally looking through that screen, seeing your brother, knowing what he'd been accused of, knowing that the burden was on you and your mother and other relatives? Did you decide at that moment that you were going to help him? The first time that I came to England, I was determined to help. But as I say, I had no idea how long that would take or what it would take from me. Um, But when I saw him behind there and he looked so vulnerable, then I felt responsible because somebody had to do something. And I had no idea what could be done, but whatever it was, it needed to be done. And I knew my mum couldn't do it. And Barry, for all his feeling that he understood everything, he couldn't do it. Uh, for a start, he was on the inside. So I was. it was like walking into completely the unknown. And it's scary. How long before Barry was put on trial? He was on remand for a year before he, was, he went to trial. How did you cope in that time? I coped by looking at my three children and knowing that they needed a normal life. So that's probably where I first started to bury what I was feeling in order to be the mother that they required. So in the book, I do mention where children asking for help with homework and my having to put aside the terror that was going on inside me in order to try and help them. And that's how you get through. What was that terror, Michelle? The terror was, again, it's the unknown. What's going to happen to us? Will he be convicted? How will that impact all of us? Uh, you know, the, this whole thing, again, of feeling responsible. I mean, obviously I wasn't responsible, but it's just the feeling that you have. And I think even more so when you're a mother, you tend to think that you're responsible for everything. So, Barry was convicted. He was sentenced to life imprisonment. How did you feel at the end of the trial where now your brother was not only accused, but now convicted of one of, if not the most high profile murder case in this country? Utterly shocked, appalled, because I was sat through all of the trial. I knew that there was far more than just reasonable doubt. It was crazy that anybody could have thought that he should be convicted because there was nothing to link him to the crime, not even the um, gunshot residue, which was the thing, the main plank, really, of the prosecution's case. Um, Even that didn't link Barry to the murder. 
And yet here we were. And I remember leaving court and going home. And then I, I was in shock. I, it was almost like I was wrapped up in cotton wool. Couldn't quite see outside of myself. And I remember sitting and a relative said, well, there's nothing you can do now. He'll probably be out in about eight years. You'll just have to wait. And I thought, that's not acceptable. That's not right. And anyway, it was wrong because since Barry would not accept his guilt, he would not have been out in seven or eight years because if you don't accept your guilt, you don't get out. Why did it fall on you to do what you did next, which is to campaign, to not do what your relative suggested and just wait? You did a lot more. You took on more than than most could probably cope with. And it takes some explanation. I would suggest people read your book to find out the, the nitty gritty details about the evidence. But why did you then decide to embark on this this campaign to prove that your brother didn't do what he was now convicted of? I think it was because um, I have a very strong Christian faith. I have a strong relationship with God. And when I said, God, what is it that you want me to do? I heard him say, I want you to stand And that made no sense to me. I said, God, come on, you know, you're going to have to be a bit clearer here. I don't know what you mean. And um, he said, I want you to stand up for your brother. And I want you to stand in front of your family. And I want you to stand against injustice. And I thought, okay, how hard can it be? God says I can do it. I better do it. But that was more than just a message, because not only were you standing up against an injustice, which eventually you were able to prove, but you were standing up against almost the British establishment because the media had, you know, this is a BBC journalist. This is the media saying one of their own and and everything pointed towards, even though some questioned it. And I know that for a fact. You were not just up against the British criminal justice system. You were up against the media. You were now up against people who believed that justice had been done and a man had been sentenced to prison and were responsible for the murder of Jill Dando. I mean, this was a a bigger fight than just one woman's fight. I mean, you talk about your, your, your message from God, but it takes more than a message. Where did that strength come from and why you? Yeah, I don't know if I even have an answer to that, but... I wasn't alone. My mom's brother, Mike, who's the same age as me, he was also fighting and campaigning and supporting Barry and, you know, coming across from Ireland to England. So I wasn't alone in that. Um, Obviously, my mother knew it wasn't true. Um, Then there's more. There's the Dando family. It wasn't fair on them. They thought... They'd been given justice, but they hadn't. They'd received as much injustice as we had. And somehow it had to be turned around. And I didn't know how much effort it would take or how long it would take. 
But if I could just do whatever was required today, then I would do that. And that's you, you can't take it all on. You can't look and say, okay, there's the whole British justice system. It's colossal. Um, yeah, you can fight them. No, <laughs> that's not true. So it's it's day by day, bit by bit, and standing firm and treating everybody with respect. We had the media coming to our door and it was constant. We had phone calls. Oh, by the way, my mum's phone was tapped as well. It was actually taken out of her name and put into somebody else's name so that they could get access to all her phone numbers because they come up. If you get a bill, all the calls that you make, the phone numbers come up. So somebody wanted the phone numbers. I found out that they'd done this and I got it reversed again. Did you find out who it was? No. The person just gave an Asian name. We've just taken over this house. Crazy things, things you could never think about. But because a bill arrived, I saw somebody else's name on it. And I had to get on to BT at the time and, and get them to reverse it. Uh, we, we, we faced crazy things. But you also had to bring up three children. You also had to run a household with your husband, work and, you know, go about your daily life. H- how were you able to, A, manage the two, trying to help your brother and get on with your life? And what impact was it having on your daily existence? You say you tried to carry on, but I know that must be really, really difficult. I think what I did was I compartmentalised everything. So I had a box over here, and that was the Barry box. And then a box where my mum was because she needed her help, because during all of this she had a breakdown. Um, and then there was a box labelled children and another one labelled husband. And then when I was working, there was another box and that was labelled work. And I just dipped in and out of all the boxes as required. But the thing about that, yes, it works, but it's extremely isolating. And, you know, it's it's who do you turn to to actually speak? Um. During all of this time, my husband died. He died in 2007. And I had to protect his family then from the media as well. Because if they'd heard he had died, um, I was afraid we'd have people arriving at the funeral. And so I had to do the best I could. Thankfully, in Ireland, funerals are within two days So it wasn't very long, but, you know, it was constantly, constantly protecting other people and just standing there, just standing, just being the face, being the one that people could come to, being the one for the media to say, um, oh, such and such is happening. We'd like a story. Can we talk to you? And either the answer was yes or no, but they were treated with respect and integrity. It was vital that we retained our integrity as people, and we did. You talked, and it was quite telling, 
about the compartmentizing of of your life in order to 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 keep moving forward and you talked about the different boxes that you were managing and for me it was striking that there was no Michel box among those boxes although there was a part of you in each of those boxes what did the Michel box look like the one where when everything was compartmentized and you returned to your own box what did that box look like Michel I think I would describe it as lonely, dark, cold. There was, I I wondered at times who I was. I truly did because I knew I was a mother. I knew I was a daughter. I knew I was a supporter, a sister, a wife. I didn't even know who I was. It was really, really difficult. I think for a long time I just got lost. How were you able to, to, to make that box bigger so that you could could live your life as well as, you know, fight to help your brother if fight is the right term? That's how I would describe it. You might describe it differently. How were you able to, to sort of get in and out of that box um, and continue to live? I don't think I did very often. I didn't get into it very often. I took on whatever role I was in. And that was my life at that time. So it was rare that I got back into that box. It like I'd have been in it if I was flying to, you know, from Cork to London um, with another job to do. And so that loneliness would, would come and it's quite overpowering. Um, and then I think what I did was I rejected the box that was my box and climbed out of it and said, right, my next job is, and that's how I did it. Like my next job when I got to the airport um, was to get on the train and get to mum because she needed support. My next job was this. So I didn't spend a lot of time inside in the box that should have been the Michelle box. It, it was empty. That I lost me. I I really lost me. It sounds like a robotic existence. I suspect until your husband died, you at least had someone to comfort you or someone to turn to or someone to sort of remind you that you were not just a sister of a man that had been accused of this crime and convicted, that you were also a mother and, and, and somebody that he he loved. Was there anybody else once he was gone who were a, who who was able to put their arm around you and give you and share comfort with you and make you think about other things beyond what you had to do outside of these boxes? My best friends were wonderful. My church family were wonderful. And I mean, at the beginning, they didn't even know whether Barry was guilty or innocent, but they were still there. So when I'd done all the things I had done and my moving backwards and forwards across the Irish Sea. Um, you know, when I would come back, whether they thought Barry was innocent or guilty, they were there to support our family. And so there was never a judgment of us. There was nothing. They just said, you didn't do anything. Your family didn't do anything. And so we're here for you. Uh, my best friends 
whether they knew he was innocent or guilty, did not make judgments. They were there. So they were like a, a bit of a cushion that um, was just very welcome. Were there any journalists, any um, particular publications or broadcasters that were, I say, sympathetic to the evidence that was questionable that led to your brother's conviction? Was there any journalist you could work with who trusted at the time that Barry was convicted? I don't think that there was, because I knew that all the journalists in the court had heard what I heard. And they had come up to me, you know, in the weeks leading up and said, we can see that there's nothing here. You know, I'm, I'm quite sure he's going to be released. And yet, the moment that he was convicted, the headlines just were on fire. They went for him like he was, oh, I don't know, a punch bag or something. And, you know, everything and anything that they could write about, they did. And they didn't seem to care at all that we were victims too. That didn't matter. They were getting revenue. Um, So at that time, um, I don't think there was anybody that I felt I could trust. I could trust the Miscarriage of Justice Organization because they had helped me um, with Barry, with the case. Um, And so... As near as I could get support, I got support from them. But, of course, they're in Glasgow. Um, I was either in London or in Cork, so that wasn't too easy. Um, It took time, I think, to find people within the, the, the journalistic world that I felt I could trust. And what was your relationship like with the legal team, the representatives who who kind of represented Barry? I mean, what was your relationship like with with them? Not his relationship, not what they did for him, but I'm talking about your relationship. Did you get on well with them? Did they listen to your point of view? Did they keep you informed? Did that help you disseminate that that information to other friends and family or, or, or help you cope with the enormity of what was going on? I'm talking about after he was convicted and in the build up and campaign for for an appeal? Well, there were two um, teams. So post-conviction, Barry still had Michael Mansfield as his barrister and he still had his solicitor. Um, And certainly coming up to through the trials, because the first trial was two trials. I don't know if you remember that, but we started the trial And then the judge decided to lift photograph restrictions. And then we had Barry emblazoned all over all the newspapers and they had to get rid of that trial, put it on hold for a few months and start it again. So Barry basically had two first trials. But at that time, I did have a very good relationship with um, the, the legal team. I did have... Apprehensions. I felt that maybe the solicitor wasn't experienced enough for a case of this magnitude, but Barry would not change because he was fearful. But having said that, she was very good to me. 
and she kept me informed all the way. And that's not usual. Usually families don't get that. So that was really important. But I think even at that stage, everybody around Barry who was working for Barry um, realised that he needed extra help. He needed help from outside. And once it was understood that I could be trusted, then they brought me in on a lot of things. And so I knew what was going to be happening Um, I knew that they were going to charge Barry before they charged him. Um, I really shouldn't have known those things. The solicitor explained to me that usually they don't work with families at all because you never know for sure who the person is you're dealing with and that person may not have integrity and might sell to newspapers all that you've just told them. So they don't work with them. But they did with us. And it, it it really was vital. And Michael Mansfield, he was amazing. He was so helpful. Um, I just felt part of the process all the way through. What was it like for you being in front of the media? Uh, because you'd hidden from the media, and I say that in the nicest possible way, but you didn't want the media's attention initially. But there came a time when you needed the media to champion your brother's case. Is that how you would describe it? I think it probably is, yes. Um, Obviously, we didn't want the media around in our lives. That's intrusive. But they were using us. They were using us for their revenue. And I just thought, well, if you can use us, we can use you. And so um, I think during all of this time, I was growing. And it's funny because I, I tend to think, well, who was I? But I was growing. I was stretching. I was becoming a different me. I wasn't the quiet person that lived in the village in County Cork. You know, I, I had become a spokesperson. I I had to um, be like a mediator between um, what was going on in the case and the media because it was vital to start getting the truth out there. And they didn't always use it. You know, it wasn't always that they would decide to go with what I'd said. But I did find something that's quite unusual, and that is that they didn't lie about me or us. They might have lied about Barry, but not us. And I honestly believe it's because they were treated with respect and integrity. When Barry's conviction was quashed, I think it was in 2007, eight, around that time. So in 2008, am I right? 2007, the conviction was quashed. So the conviction was overturned and a retrial was set. How did you feel during that period? Because I suppose on the one hand, you were elated that his conviction was quashed, but that dread of him being reconvicted still existed. How was you feeling? It, again, very, very difficult And, you know, not always easy to talk about what I was feeling. But one of the things I really did feel was deep sadness because my husband had not lived to hear that Barry had had his conviction quashed. And that was really bittersweet. And then we had to work towards this new trial 
and his new legal team seemed to resent me. And I hadn't done anything to deserve it, but they did. Um, I mean, I had to watch over what they were doing. I shouldn't have had to do that. Um, but I knew that they hadn't sat through the first trial. They didn't know all the stuff that I knew. And frequently I had to say, no, you need to go back and you need to look for this person. Um, no, that's not the way. It was this way. And there was a very definite resentment of me, except for if they wanted me to pass information to Barry when I was doing a prison visit. And then they would say to me, oh, well, you know, can you talk this to him? Can you talk sense to him? Well, Barry's got autism. You can't talk sense to him. You can only do whatever you can do. So I'm not sure if I've answered the question there, but yeah, it was really, really difficult. How did you feel when he was finally cleared of any involvement in the in the crime? And how did your relationship with Barry once he was free evolve? Obviously, I was elated. We had done this. We had we'd achieved what we needed to achieve, and it was wonderful. But I found myself with a very frail mother and a very damaged brother. He had been eight years in prison. He didn't really know. The world had moved on in eight years. There were things he was going to have to relearn. And then we did an interview with um, the News of the World and thought, that's fine. We've done it now. We've told everybody. They'll leave us alone. And the part that we did was fine. But they'd gone to all sorts of other people, including the police, and gotten interviews from them too. And they slated Barry. We had the most awful time. I had taken Mum and Barry away, still knowing that my children were at home. I mean, obviously they were bigger now, but they were still at home. Um, and we went to the Isle of Wight and we sort of looked for a place to hole up. Again, something we shouldn't have had to do. And, um, you know, everybody knew us in the street. We were on the TV every day. We were on the newspapers every day. And I thought, I've got to get him out of the country. But he had no passport. How do I get him out of the country? And it was Paddy Hill said to me, he doesn't need a passport to go to Belfast. Get him to Belfast. So that's what we did. I got him to Belfast. And then he didn't need a passport to go from Belfast to Cork. So I was able to get him from Belfast to Cork. And the media didn't know where he was because we'd been very careful with our phone calls. That's the kind of life we had to live. All said and done, what do you think about your life experiences and what you, your family, had to endure? It has made myself and my three children bigger people, more rounded, more understanding, less trusting. Um, you know, all of my children stand against 
any form of injustice that they come up against. If a friend of theirs is being victimized, my children stand up and they don't let it happen. And I'm very proud of them. But I think if we hadn't gone through all of this, they wouldn't have had the experience to grow that way. Um, for me, I now try my best to support other people, other families, rather than the person in prison. I try to support other families. And to that end, I'm, I would be um, a patron of United Against Injustice and I speak at their meetings frequently. Um, I'm a supporter of Mojo. Um, I do um, talks. The most recent talk that I did actually was for um, female barristers in London. They wanted something on miscarriage of justice, and so they asked if I would go and speak with them. And so public speaking has become my new role. I couldn't have done that way back. I didn't have it in me. But I do now, and I see pitfalls, and sometimes I decide to ignore them and just go forward anyway, and sometimes I decide to skirt them and find another way. Um, but that's how my life has changed. And, you know, with the book, I found that the comments that I was getting, I was getting um, messages from people who were saying things like, my loved one's in prison. Your book helped him so much. He's a miscarriage of justice. Well, I don't know if they're all miscarriage of justices, but I don't have to because I'm there to support the family member and they did nothing. So um, I'm uh, a patron as well of the Jeremy Bamba campaign. And that's a whole other day's interview, so we won't go into that one. But I have very good reason for believing in his innocence. And so it's my job. It is my job now to stand and to stand up for these people. And even though I don't do anything, I'm not a legal person, um, I can't go into court and do anything for them. But I can be there. And if they want to talk, I'm there. If they want to email me, they can do so. They can read the book. They can learn what I learned. And I suppose the biggest change in my life was meeting and marrying a lovely man that I met on the internet. I just, you know, tell people, I, I, I bought him off eBay and I'm going to sell him on Amazon. <laughs> but yeah, it was a Christian um, website for... Um, dating or for socialising. So I met lots of women as well, and they've become lifelong friends. But I met Peter, and two years later we married. And where I said before that my box was dark and empty and cold, I have to say being with Peter, it's like having a warm blanket on a cold day. It's lovely. And he's the one, when I was writing the book, who said, here's your coffee, drink it. Did you drink it yet? Stop work. You have to come and eat. You've been working too long. Come on, we're going out for a walk. I mean, this man, when he first met me, he didn't even know what miscarriage of justice was. 
now he's swimming in the same pool. It's crazy. And Barry? Barry is a lot calmer. Um, he's a big fish in a small pool. And that doesn't really suit him. He would much prefer to live in London, where if he chose to go to one area today, he could do that and then tomorrow go to another area. Um, he liked that. That gave him anonymity to a degree. Um, it's an anonymity that he remembers, but it's not really there now. Um, it was pre-trial. Um, but being in Cork and being surrounded by people who understand miscarriage of justice in the just the English justice system, um, he can't really understand it the way we can, but he is cushioned. He is cushioned by living there. And my family still live there, so if he needs anything, they're there. Why did you write the book Stand Against Injustice? I had many reasons. I think at the beginning I thought, you know, world, you don't know what we're having to go through. So I wanted the world to know. But it evolved because I realised that there was bigger than us, much bigger than us. There's a whole underground life of miscarriage of justice, people living half-lives while they're looking for justice, um, many of them with no... They have no roadmap. I had no roadmap to tell me where to go, what to do, who to talk to. So I wanted to lay some of those things out. I wanted to warn people that don't let your son or daughter be represented by a solicitor who's representing other people, as in joint enterprise, because even if they know that your loved one is innocent, they can't go against the others. So your loved one's going to get convicted. People don't know that. So whatever you have to do to get it, get your own solicitor, because otherwise you won't get justice. Um, and then I felt that there was a responsibility on the justice system to know what they cause when they do what they do just because they can, they need to know that there are repercussions that go way, way beyond the person they've just wrongfully convicted. That, you know, it, I, I call it the ripple effect in the book. And if you think about it, you know, you drop a, a pebble into that pool. It's not just where the pebble dropped that the movement is. It goes on and on and on. And that is really important, isn't it? Because I think the focus is often, if not all the time, on the victim and the perpetrator. But behind both the victim and the perpetrator are the families. And that's one of the reasons I wanted to talk to you, Misha, because I think people are familiar with Barry's case, familiar with Jill Dando's case, two separate entities. But they're not familiar with with people like yourself who are also sort of caught up in this 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 type of case and I thought it would be important for people to hear your story your journey why how where and if not what else could they learn um beyond the case and I think you've given a very deep and thoughtful account 
of what it's like being the sister of a man who's been wrongly accused, convicted, imprisoned. What does the future hold? Well, I thought that once Barry was freed, I'd go back to being me. Of course, I didn't realise that I didn't know who me was at the time. Um, But life has moved on and it's moved on and it's moved on. And at the moment, the future seems to be talking to people about miscarriage of justice. Um, I had meetings lined up and then, of course, we got locked down. So they got cancelled. But I'm getting people contacting me now for online meetings. Um, There's a big one planned where I will do like a presentation and that will go to some of the churches um, to discuss with other Christians what... um, what is it is to look at justice? What is justice and how should Christians view it? Um, what's forgiveness? All of those things. They're all things that came up in the book while I was writing. And um, they, they, they challenge people. You know, it's, it's all very well to say, oh, well, you know, Barry was guilty, therefore his family were guilty. You know, you don't do that. So if Joe Bloggs carried out a crime, that doesn't mean his family should be thrown out with the bathwater. And we need to to remember, even if that person was guilty, we need to be there for those families and support them. They did nothing. Was Barry ever compensated for the eight years that he was wrongfully imprisoned. You know, were you and your family compensated for the years of your own lives that you lost fighting to help your brother? You know, the journeys you made from Ireland to England. Was there any form of compensation for you and Barry? Not a single penny. Nothing. Barry was told that since he hadn't proven his innocence beyond a reasonable doubt... Um, that he couldn't have compensation. And he was told a second thing. Oh, he wasn't a miscarriage of justice because there was enough evidence to go forward for a second trial. So he was given two brick walls that he could never get through. And, you know, Barry has not proven his innocence beyond a reasonable doubt. In law, there is no such thing. It's the, the prosecution who have to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that you did it. There is no, there isn't even a mechanism in law for you to take your proof and go back to court and say, here's my proof. I can prove I didn't do it. You can't do that. There's no mechanism because proving your innocence beyond a reasonable doubt does not exist. And yet it was used against Barry and Barry will never receive any compensation. So Barry's never received a penny. We are thousands and thousands out of pocket. Money we'll never see back again. And none of that was for legal fees. That was just our expenses. That was just the money to support Barry um, before his release and you know, at times we're still supporting him 
because all he's got is his disability payments. This podcast is called Second Chance because I want to hear from people who have experienced, given, taken, deserved a, a, a second chance. How do you think second chance fits into to your life? And what does that, that, that word second chance mean to you? I think for me, I've had a lot of second chances. I've, I've grown so much that I'm a different person. And that's a second chance because instead of living a small life, I'm living quite a full life. I have a chance now to reach other people and I want to use it. But the other second chance and the biggest one for me personally is my remarriage, is being able to go forward in life with this lovely man and then looking at my family as they're getting married and having their own children and life going forward. It's all second chances. It's wonderful. And uh, I would say to anybody, you get a second chance, you take it. Michelle, thank you very much for spending time with us today. And I wish you well in, in the future. Thank you very much for having me on. If you've been affected by any of the issues discussed in this podcast, please have a look at the show notes where you'll find contact details for organisations that might be able to help you. If you've listened to this episode on any of the podcast players that allows you to rate and review, please rate and review. And please subscribe to be notified when new episodes are posted. You can listen to previous episodes on any of the major podcast players. This podcast was produced by Your Vision Media Limited, original music by J-Row Productions, design work by Studio Minerva, and myself, Raphael Rowe. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.